thank you for being here. I just want to say again, thanks so much for coming and uh, being a part of our, our morning this morning as we worship God as we look at His Word and uh, connect with each other. It's all so important. You know, um, Hebrews 10, it says, don't, don't stop doing this. Don't forsake the ascending, coming together, being together, worshiping God together. Um, it's very easy not to. Um, and so I want to say thank you for making that priority uh, that we come together. We're a group of imperfect people. We're a group of people that are broken and need Jesus. And uh, thank God that He's merciful. So let's pray and let's get into this morning. God, thank you that your grace is sufficient, that your mercy is new every morning. Your compassions don't fail. Lord, that you are always good. Lord, that you are building your kingdom. Jesus, that you came to rescue us and that you love us deeply. Lord, I pray for each person here today. Lord, that uh, for all of us that we have ears to hear what you are saying, you are speaking. Lord, we ask that once again that your word would come alive into our hearts and that we would uh, be careful to honor you always in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's our final sermon in God's at War. Uh, it's amazing how six weeks have kind of flown by. Um, if you are new with us today, we have just been over the last six weeks looking at and uh, looking at those things, confronting and battling against the things that keep our hearts in total surrender and total devotion to Jesus Christ. And so it's battling these gods, these gods are at war, that war within us, these idols that uh, we may struggle with because we're all we're all in battle, we're all struggling and it's a battle for our hearts. And so um, Today, I also want to, uh, at the very end of this message, I want to tie in some things because I think that it's a good segue um, to where I'm going to be going over after the next couple of weeks. Um, we will be starting a new series in November called I'm the Church Member about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. I'm going to encourage you to be a part of that. You know, if you're not a part of a small group and you'd like to be, um, the three of those weeks that uh, they meet three times in front of the back, just time in the back. There'll be books available, little books that call by the church member will be very challenging. But over the next couple of weeks, and today I'm going to address it a little bit, um, I want to talk about the state of our world a little bit, and just from a biblical perspective, the things that are going around, you know, uh, scared, fear, Ebola, ISIS, we're hearing all of these things. You watch the news, the economy, what, what's happening in the world, and what should our response be? What is a biblical perspective? Um, what did Jesus talk about as far as things to come? What did the apostles talk about as far as things to come? And so I'm, I'm going to be talking about that uh, more extensively next the next two weeks. When you can invite someone, if you know someone, it, 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 it's definitely going to be pointing us to Christ. And, and uh, what he said, and, and, and kind of a, a, as, a, as a sobering, having a sobering mindset to what Jesus might be saying, I, I will be talking a little bit about it today. Today you're going to get a two-for-one, two-for-one special today. today only. So you might be wondering what the chair is. I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. It, 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 it's actually VIP seating, so if anybody wants to earn that spot, you can still up behind me. So I don't know if you'll be sitting there, but... <laughs> That's not good. I'll get into it in a moment. Um, but God's at war has been an honest evaluation of our hearts. And I think that uh, understanding that God knows us better than we know ourselves, doesn't He? We don't hide anything from Him. I mean, we can strive to maneuver things, we can manipulate things, and we can try to hide things. But He knows our hearts better than we know ourselves. And so this whole series is just an honest inventory, an honest evaluation of where we are at in our walk with God. And so we've been looking at this battle for our hearts to remove those things that we contend to put before God. That's why the whole idea of God's at war. God gave that first commandment, you should have no other gods before me. 
the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, a lot of us might think, well, you know, back then they had these, you know, gold statues or the golden calf, and, and those are idols. And, and, and if you've been tracking along with us, those are those visible idols that they had back in the day. But ultimately, an idol is something that is in our heart that takes the place of God. The things that we run to instead of God. And so we look at those more prevalent gods in our lives that we struggle and we battle against to some degree or another. The gods of pleasure, the gods of love, the gods of money, the gods of power and control. And so, but today I want to look at what I believe is that at the core of all the other idols. Those idols, I think, are just a manifestation of the deeper issue of where we're going today. They are real, but they are somewhat symptoms of the problem. And so the biggest God we deal with, I think the most sinister God, the, the root idol of all idols is the idol of me, the idol of self. All those other things, it's about us becoming God of our own lives. And as we track through today, we're going to look, we're going to find out that you and I are horrible gods. You're a horrible God, and so am I. If we were, you know, have you ever, have you ever had those things, those thoughts, and I have, I don't know I have, maybe I'm just confessing myself here, but if I were God, I would this. Have you ever thought that? Hopefully you only think that for like a microsecond because you think that, you know, I'm glad I'm not God. But if I were God, or maybe that thought, man, I don't know if I would do it that way or do things. I think I would do this or that. Sometimes when we get angry about situations, circumstances, things that are going on, it's easy for us to have that thought. If I were God, I'd do it way differently than that. And we're going to find out that we're all lousy, horrible gods. The God of me, the God of self, it is at the center of all idolatry and sin. And ultimately, ultimately, all the other idols, all the sins we deal with, have the foundation of this God. So, as with the gods of power and control that I talked about last week, that we're all connected to both in some way or another, the God of self has direct ties to Satan's self. I, I actually put this passage up on the screen last week. I'm not going to, I'm just going to revisit it here. But in this passage about Satan from Isaiah, Listen to again what it says about the enemy of our souls, and you see that it's tied to the enemy himself. Who was this angel? He was an archangel. He was, as far as rank goes, he was, he was one of the top angels, Lucifer. And if you study scripture, you just see that he was a prominent figure. But here's what Isaiah says about him. He says, how you have are fallen from heaven, O shining star. Son of the morning, you have been thrown down to the earth. Remember when he rebelled against God, he was cast down, a third of the angels with him. It is you who destroy the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, and here's what the enemy said of himself I will ascend to heaven, I will set my throne above God's sons. I will take the throne, in other words. I can do a better job than God. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Then it says this instead, though, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to the lowest depths. And when you try to exalt yourself and put yourself in the place of God, the consequences of that are, are horrific. And the enemy did that. This is what it was spoken of the enemy. And you hear what he says, I, I, me, me, I will do this. I will be in control. I will call the shots. I will put my place, myself in the place of God. I will take his throne. And so it ultimately, it is this idea of claiming my claim to the right of myself. My claim to the right of to myself. Our culture, isn't it very true that it's kind of all about me? Advertising, it's about you. It's how you benefit. It's how it, it works for you. 
And so every decision, everything that we do, everything, maybe our purchases, or how we respond, a lot of times is, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect me? How can I be more comfortable? Well, you know, I'm going to do this or do that. I'm going to say this or say that. I'm going to maybe even, you know, help somebody, maybe for the wrong motives. But how is this going to ultimately benefit me? I will be involved as long as it benefits me in some way, as long as there is a benefit for me. And that's what our culture is pervasive and it's preached throughout. And you deserve. You deserve to be comfortable. You deserve to this or that. Yeah, I, I just get so, it, it, it's so funny. You see some of these reality shows. Don't you love reality shows? Very real. Nothing stupid there at all. Um, and you have different situations, whatever it might be, but somebody is going to, like, get some, and you, what is the console, like, you know, when somebody's, like, having a thing, they put their arm around a window and say, you deserve this. You deserve this. Do it for you. Don't do it for anyone. Do it for you. Don't you hear that? And I'm not saying we shouldn't make decisions that, that, that help us or we improve ourselves in some way. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there is this idea and culture that really we put ourselves at the center of the universe. The problem is, you look around the world, there's a lot of universes, isn't there? We live in a culture that says, that's mine. This is mine. I will do that if I feel like it. We do things that we want to do, don't we? Especially in America. There's some cultures and some places are on the planet, I mean, those people, are, I mean, they, they are oppressed by I mean, harsh rulers. I mean, what we're seeing in the Middle East, there are people that are being forced to do stuff. In America, we do what we want to do. We really do. We prioritize what we want. And again, we tend to do those things that benefit us. This began in the hearts of the people of time creation. I want you to look at this passage from Genesis. We're going to see if it's not, you know, we already have what happened to the devil. We already have what happened to him. And here in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, God's perfect creation spoke, everything's moving with, 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 with God's purpose and God's rhythm. And then there's this crash in Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? You know, God had given them stewardship. He said, because he did not want to make them worship him, he gave them free will. And this is how that worked out in the garden. It was Don't touch that tree. And here's what the enemy just kind of, did, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And so is, is Eve confused about what God said? Absolutely not. She's very clear on what God's directive as he would come and be with Adam and her, and she's very clear what God has said. It's very important to remember that when we understand what God has said. God's very clear when he's given us his word. His word is very clear on the things that we wrestle with, the things that in culture we, what we want to do is we want to make that a, well, that's more of a gray area. And God says, no, my word does not make it a gray area. It's very black and white. It's, it, it's not a gray area. It's not making a gray area. Just because culture makes it a gray area doesn't mean it's a gray area. He was very clear what God has said, and God's clear in what he says. Now, the enemy, you won't certainly die, the certain says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. So what is the enemy saying here? That sounds really appealing, doesn't it? You'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. Isn't that great? You will, you will have greater knowledge. You will have a greater revelation. And you'll be like God. And, and you know, basically, God's afraid of that. God's afraid. You, you, you take the throne. You deserve the throne. God's holding out on you. You deserve to be in the place of making your own decisions here. You can make that call. Not, not God. You take the place of God. And so the devil came to them 
with an element of truth, but the truth was with a lie. You will be like God, but you won't die. And so this is the crux of the problem for all of us. Here's the truth. You can make God like decisions for your life. The enemy said you will be like God. Like. Not, 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 you, you won't be God, but you'll be like God. So what, is, what is the enemy saying? Here's a, here's a level, here's an element of truth for all of us. You can make God like decisions for your life. You can do whatever you want to do. I mean, now, we understand the consequences for every decision you make. But you can do it. You can play God with your life. We ha- we, that happens every day. I will do this. I will make that decision. I will do this. Sometimes it's little things, but sometimes it's bigger things. But ultimately, we can, we can, have, we can play God in our lives. And so he comes to the level of truth. But here's the lie. You won't die. You won't die. Now, immediately when they took the fruit, they didn't just drop over death. So, but their eyes were open, and they began the process of death. And they brought spiritual death upon themselves. And then they began to understand, and that's why they hid themselves in the garden. It's because we have made a God-like decision, and now we understand that death has really come. Spiritual death has come, and we are paying, we are paying a huge price for taking the place of God. And it's a price that none of us can afford to pay. So the enemy calls God into question. Why was that? Because there was this unknown. They, you know, they, what does that mean, we'll die? What does that mean? And, and I always think it's interesting because they are so much like us. They have this entire garden which was very large. They had all these trees that they could tend to and eat from. And they had, I mean, so much at their fingertips. And where do we find them in Genesis 3? Around that thing that they're not supposed to be touching. And before we get critical of them, isn't that like us? What do you mean I can't touch it? Why can't I touch it? You know, and, and, and we get as close to it as possible. What, what, what happens? If I touch it. And we have them hanging out. And, and you can almost, and I've got an active imagination, but you can almost see them talking about, I mean, that where it consumes their thoughts. They're maybe going to sleep at night one. What do I can't touch it? They're waking up in the morning. Can we look at that tree again? Yeah, let's go look at it. And, and, and maybe spending a lot, large amount of time as close to the What does that mean? And the, the enemy's right there. Right at the door. And so he calls God into question about the unknown. And they took the bait. They placed themselves as God in their own life. And again, this is what we do when we sin and we do things our own way. It is the root of all sin. We have become God. The problem is we don't believe that God has our best interest in mind. That He truly loves us. We really wrestle with the love of God because if we believe the love of God and we saw the cross for what He did, for, for what he did and I know because we, we've all grown up with it and we've all seen it, whether or not you, know, you were raised in church or how much you went to church, you see the cross and we can just so take it for granted. It's a symbol, it's Easter, yeah, I've seen that a million times. But when we lose the significance of it, is that is God's love for me. We tend to do to take control, and then we don't believe that God truly loves me or has my best interest in mind. We call Him into question, especially in the times of the unknown, difficult times, hard seasons, seasons of suffering, or how about unanswered prayers? Or you pray that it would happen this way and it doesn't happen that way. Those are the times where it's tested because then we immediately start having questions, which is not wrong to have questions and doubts and that we wrestle with our faith. There's a, there's a normal thing for that. That's why I love reading people that we, that we, we really honor. And we should, but you know, Mother Teresa, and they found out after she passed away that she had a lot of doubts and questions. She wrestled with many things. I think that. She was human. 
and we wrestle with those things, and it's at those moments that we have to be on guard where that's where the enemy flies in with that little lie. You prayed about that and it didn't happen that way. And ultimately, he's recreating what Adam and Eve, and there's the tree, so you take control of this. Take control of your own life. God's not really that good anyway. And it's in those moments the enemy brings the lie and basically says, you can do better. You can do better. You're way better at being God than he is. So last week's illustration, I talked about power and control with the steering wheel. Well, remember, as you guys were here, it's, it's God steering and us constantly and that part of war with the steering wheel. If I want to be in control, it's, God, are you sure you want to go left? I think we should go right. And I say, I've got it. I'm, I'm very confident in being God. You know, we think God is like emotionally unstable. He's right. But we think, oh, man, I think you just took a wrong turn. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going exactly the way you need to go. This week's illustration is the throne. This is my own little throne in my office. So if you're ever sitting in it, don't, don't, don't think that you're on the... It's just my little makeshift throne today. So God wants us to just put ourselves down on our own on the throne that belongs to Him. And this feels really nice. Preach from here and maybe fall asleep to all the preaching. I don't know. Um, it's very comfortable. It's a place of power and authority. The throne means lordship. The idea of lord. It's a, it, what does what lord mean? Lord means ruler and reigner. It is a place of ruling and reigning. It's more than just struggling with the steering wheel because in the struggle with the steering wheel, we like that God, you know, we like that Jesus is there. We just like to be steering the ship or resting with him. So it goes deeper than that. It's, it's removing Christ as Lord, as King, as ruler and reigner of my life, and me sitting on the place of my life in the throne. I sit in the place of power. Nothing or no one tells me what to do. No one guides me. No one holds me accountable. I am the one calling the shots. That's what the, basically the enemy. That's why. He was cast down and says, I will take the place of God. I will set my place. I will set on his throne in the place of authority and power and control. Sitting on the throne of our lives says, I will make the decisions. I know better than anyone, including God. And so this is a very dangerous place to be, and yet it is pervasive in our culture. Not just in the secular world, it happens in the church where we have presumed to know God or how He will do something. So it's easy for us to point our fingers at the culture of the world or the secular culture and not realize that we in the church, we as believers, we wrestle with these things as well. And sometimes we presume God or we think that we know how it's all going to be shaped out and we've got Him figured out. I can pray this way, or I can speak this or that, and he is obligated to do what I think he should do. Prideful prayers that I will speak this, I will proclaim that, and then something doesn't happen, then we run ourselves into a problem. And that's not saying that we take this, you know, little piddly thing of, you know, that I, I don't have my, an identity in Christ. No, we are children of God, we are children of the King. God loves us, we belong to Christ, and there is a level of confidence we can have as children. I'm talking about when we presume on God to know, and we set ourselves above, thinking that He is supposed to do something a certain way, and then He doesn't do it. Because that brings great heartbreak. And what does Paul say? We don't even know how to pray as we ought. Right? You know what he said? He said, we don't, I don't even know how to pray as I ought to pray. And so, the last thing, if I don't know how to pray as I ought, the last thing I'm going to do is pray through presumptive prayers that God's supposed to do this or that, and I think I know what He's supposed to do. It's a place of humility to say, God, I don't really know how to pray. I'm in a situation, I'm in a season, I'm in this is going on, and, and, and God, let me be honest with you at first, humbled in a place of, I don't know how to pray, but Lord, you love me, and I want to walk with you, and you're going to walk with me through this. And it could be a miraculous intervention, or it could be that He walks with you through it and gives you grace in the moment. 
And I think equally, it's equally miraculous to read that down. So the bottom line is we've all done it. We've placed ourselves on the throne of our own lives. We've become God. Whether outright or suddenly, we, we do it. And so how do we do it? And then how do we remove ourselves to stop from, from, from some of the areas of our lives? And I'm going to give us a couple of biblical examples um, that I think that what we can do is as we read these portions of these stories, we can say, God, thank you for speaking to us because the Word of God reaches in, 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 from, from generation to generation into our hearts. First of all, I want to look at this Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel 4. And you got to understand, I'm going to give you a little backstory. I'll have some passages of Scripture up on the screen. I'm not going to go through another kind of whole story up on the screen because it would just take too long to kind of read through that. But ultimately, you know, Israel had rebelled against God. And it's interesting in the history, and we, we really talked about this when we went through the story, but is the ups and downs of Israel, the rebellion of Israel, you know, the prophets would say, come back to God. It was always come back to God, humble yourself, back into God, repent, turn from your sins, come back to God. And, you know, and they were on this all the time, you know, and there would be a godly leader that would rise up, you know, and call them back to God, then you'd have a bad leader, and they would go into idolatry. Ultimately, if you boil this down, it really is that the, the children of Israel in those moments of rebellion, you know what they said, is they said, we will take the throne of God. God, we remove you, we will call our own shots. And they went through all kinds of of painful circumstances, sometimes hundreds of years, because ultimately God was saying, I'm, I'm showing you that you're allowed to God. When you're in control, it all falls apart. This is, you know, a lot of people say, well, God was mean. No, God just said, okay, you be God for a while. That's ultimately what He does. God's not cruel. He's not vindictive. He is a loving Father that says, if you are bent on rejecting me, I will go ahead. Here's the throne. Go right ahead. It's like, remember the prodigal son? Gimme, gimme, I want, I want, give me my money. I don't care about you. And Jesus is telling the story, pointing to God the Father. And he says, okay, you can go ahead. Go ahead. Control your own life. Get on the throne of your own life. You call the shots. Let me know how that goes for you. And what he does, he comes back home, smells up a pig, he's broken. And what does the father do? The father is not vindictive. The father opens his arm, embraces him, and says, you still are in my family. That's mercy. That's redemption. And that was ultimately Israel. Okay, you guys go ahead and be God for a while. Take these next 200 years and you guys be God. And it left them broken, shattered, and in this time, captive. And the Babylonians came and seized them. They took them over. They took a bunch of them hostage. They kidnapped a bunch of kids. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were among those. They were... Uh, God gave them favor, and they rose to prominent positions, but it was godless society, and Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the planet at the time. No one, as far as earthly, was greater than Nebuchadnezzar. But in God's mercy, he's doing all this and trying to bring godless people to himself, too. And so there's no one power more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar. And it's interesting that he has seen God move already. Remember when he has the dream of the, you know, the statue. They tell him what, and Daniel gives him the, the interpretation of the dream. So what does he do? He builds a 90-foot statue, mostly of those believe of himself. Here's, here's how I'm going to hang on to my kingdom. It's a 90-foot gold statue of me. That's a problem, if you were wondering. So I remember when King Saul, when they were looking for him one time, he said he's out building a monument to himself. It's probably an indication that you have just sat on the throne of God. When you're building a monument to yourself and you want people to work with it. And so we have Nebuchadnezzar, he has seen God move. What happened is he made everyone, hey, when they play the music, everybody bows down and worship to the idol. Ultimately to me. And we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What do they do? We're not bowing. No, we, we know who the living God is. We're not going to do that. We're not going to bow. They were. They were they have, they have some level of authority in, in the kingdom. And so that no, we won't bow. Then it's recorded, you know, the, the, the tattletales of uh, the day. The uh, king, uh, not everybody else bows, but they're not bowing. And he says, you will bow, or you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. And here's what they say, and I love this, this, this sense of faith. They said, oh, king, here's the deal. 
You can throw us in the furnace, and our God is able to save us. But even if He doesn't, we're not done. Just tell you that. In other words, we win either way. We, we either are burned completely up and we go to heaven, we get to be with God, or God's going to show up and they're going to freak you out. And that's what happened. Is they, you know, in, in the cave, the kid says that the, the Nebuchadnezzar was enraged at this, and so he throws them in alive uh, into the furnace, and, and they're waiting for them to, to burn and be consumed, and then they look around and say, there's, there's, there's somebody else that's like the Son of God in there. So Jesus shows up in the furnace, saves them, shooting at them, miraculously. All right, pull them out. No one has never could ever do. He has an opportunity. Everyone's going to worship the God of God right in the second minute. And if you're not, we'll, we'll tear you away from them. I always like that he said that. You know? We're going to do this, we're going to tear you away Does it? Tears on back. Some of you guys got that. <laughs> and so, he's seen God move. He's seen God move and work miraculously. But time goes by, and pride begins to get back in his heart. All right, in Daniel 4, let's, let's, let's start this out. So, at the beginning of Daniel 4, it says, King of Man, King Nebuchadnezzar, the nations and peoples of every language, who live on the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure, listen to what he says, to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for you. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And so this declaration, he begins this, 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 this proclamation, this song of worship unto God. How does the godless king say that? Well, here he's getting ready to tell us, and he's given us the story. I won't read again. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but he basically tells the story of his own pride. He said, I was very prideful, and I had this scary dream, and the dream was about this tree out in the wilderness, this script there. And here's what Daniel, Daniel gives him the interpretation again. He said, um, King, here's the, here's the deal. In the dream, you're the tree. You're going to be out in the wilderness. You're going to live in the wilderness for seven years. You're going to eat grass at the cow. You're going to be like an animal. He's the most powerful man on the earth. And he says, God's going to break you down because you have placed yourself in the place of God. So Nebuchadnezzar, he begins this worship thing because this has already happened to him. And so... It happens, and so, but, but here's what Daniel says: He says, "Repent and turn to God, so that it doesn't have to happen to you." And he says that to him. And he even says, you know, I mean, at some point, Daniel was even he cared about him. He had compassion. He goes, I, "I, I don't want this to happen to you. I don't want you to have to learn this now. Repent, turn to God. This won't have to happen." But we see that it happens, and so. At the, you know, ultimately, you know, Nebuchadnezzar comes out and says one morning, he looks over and he goes, look at all that I've done. Look at this. Look at, look at, basically, look how amazing I am. Look at my kingdom. He says immediately, he loses his mind. He goes off in wilderness. And his hair goes out and he turns into basically a madman. For seven years. And then at the end of the time, the end of that time, I never could ever listen to this. Raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to Him, "What have you done?" In this right response, this powerful, godless king is brought to his knees by the power of God. He sees God for who he is. And he says, oh, he is greater than anything that you can imagine. And here's the amazing thing about that. Nebuchadnezzar ended well. This crazy, lunatic, power-hungry kid. Put it in perspective. It would be like the guy Kim Jong-un of North Korea coming to know Christ and making a public declaration over the TV, over the airwaves, and say, Jesus Christ is the living God. And He is King of kings and Lord of lords. You know what? God can do that. God can bring the most powerful people to their knees. 
And here's the thing about Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what we learned. And in case you don't think that we all have a little Nebuchadnezzar in us, be careful. We have his story because we all do. And we all can look at what we, how awesome we are and how special we are. Humility and surrender are the greatest ways that we can respond to God and remove ourselves as God of our own lives and allow Him to be the true and living God. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar did not rail against God when he was in the place of brokenness and humility. God, if you love me, why did you let me? If you're so powerful, why? God brought him to his knees and he did not rail against God. He saw God for who he was. And so then he, after that time, he recognized that God was the only God and he was all powerful. And here's the thing because of his response, his kingdom was restored. And he ends well after he removes himself off the throne of his own life. And so when we endure broken times of hardship, persecutions, sufferings, the tendency, and, and you've got to fight against that, the tendency is to look for more control in our own life, to take a stronger seat on the throne of our own hearts. And that we can allow it to make us hard, and it can make us a, a cruel ruler of our own world. And we shake our fist at God and say, I can do a better job than that. But during those times, like Nebuchadnezzar, allow it to remind you that we are weak, that we need Him every day. Because ultimately, hardness, bitterness, anger, and ruling doesn't lead you to greater control. It's a false sense of control, and it, and it makes you take that place of, of, of God in your life. It's a great lie that leads you to greater emptiness and greater struggle. Because we're horrible gods. Humility and surrender ultimately lead us to true life, true peace, and true hope, not in our circumstances, but in Jesus the Lord, ruler, reigner. You have the throne of my life. Because here's the thing, we like Him as Savior. We like Him as healer. We like Him for the things that He does. But do we worship Him for who He actually is, that He is also Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. The next story is Job. And it's just Job's response to God in context. And most of you know the story. That Job is a righteous man who loves God. And it's a troubling story to read on one level. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's ultimately a story about God's power and sovereignty in our life. So Job is a righteous man. He loves God. He's a man of integrity. And the enemy comes to God and says, uh, consider your servant Job and look at this guy. And, 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 and God says, yeah, there's no one like him on the earth. It's a great testimony. And Job says, yeah, you know, if he's righteous and he's good and all, but it's because you, you have protected him. You put him in this little protective bubble. and that, you know, But I guarantee you, if you strike him at a certain level, he will curse you. And God says this, which is something real. What happened? Do it. But don't kill him. And so he loses everything. He loses his wealth. He loses his children. His children die. I mean, this is a painful thing to read. But in all of it, he does not sin against God and he doesn't curse God and he struggles because he struggles with all of it. But then he passes the first test. And so you think that that would be okay, but then the devil comes and says, well, hey, yeah, he's still good and all, and you know he, he had a certain, but but you strike him physically, then he'll turn against you. God says, okay, but don't kill him. So what happens is he breaks off in all these boils and his sores, and, and he is he's just miserable, and he's just trying to figure out God, what in the world is going on, and what is what are you speaking in this? What is happening? His friends come, his friends. He's got these three friends, and I, again, the, the greatest thing that they could do in the first part of Job is they sat there in silence, and then they turn something in their mouth, and it all kind of went down here. Because here's the, some of the here's some of the problem with his friends, and ultimately they get rebuked at the end. Here's one of the the, the major problems: they presume to know God. 
well, you're going through this because of X, Y, Z, and A, B, C. And if you do this, if you do that, and if you pray this prayer, if you proclaim this, and say this, and if God truly is, and then what they were doing is saying, we'll be God in your way. And God rebuked them at the end of it all because they presumed God in arrogance and pride. And so ultimately we know that through this time Job has these exchanges with his friends. And he's complaining. He's not he's not cursing God, but he's complaining to his father. He's, he asks, he's asking a thousand questions. He's hurting. He doesn't get it. This is the worst possible scenario. But he never sins through it. He passes the test ultimately. And so, if you read what he says, though, he has some complaints against God, just like David did. David complained, God, where are you at? Have you turned a deaf ear toward me? Have you left me all alone? And so, Job gets to the end, though, and God has some questions for him, and I want you to read read this in this response. So, in chapter 40 of Job, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. Buckle up, kids. It's getting ready to get real. That's what he's saying. That's what this might have been. Buckle up and embrace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you just credit my judgment? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? That last phrase, will you condemn me to justify yourself? That's the place of God. Are you condemning God to justify yourself? You want to make the decisions, you want to call the shots, and you say, well, God's not really good. And Job could have said, well, God's not really good and doesn't really uh, love me. I was righteous and this is how he repays me. But you see, he's already. Because God had asked him a series of questions, basically, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Thank you. I, I, thought, I thought that you probably wouldn't have an answer to that. When I was at the very beginning, of the, at the beginning, where were you, Job? And so he goes through it and all this creation, the things that he spoke into existence, where were you? And so we get into trouble when we bring God down to our level of understanding. When we make him like us. See, if we're not careful, and this is what has happened in culture, is we begin to deify man and humanize God. We make ourselves like God. We know better. And we begin to humanize God. God is like me. We either make him like us or we reject him because he's like us. I don't like that God's jealous. Jealousy, that's a, that's a bad thing. God, when God says that God's jealous, he's not jealous like a human being. Don't try to put him in human definitions of human behavior and human emotion. He's nothing like us. And then we deify ourselves. Job's response to the second round of questions is, I spoke before thinking that I had y'all figured out. That's basically what he said. He's saying that. How you were supposed to do this or that. Now I'm going to say no more. I'll keep my hands up and no more. And then Job's ending statement, I love in Job 42. This is very profound. I can get to it when you read it. Everybody's waiting. Hey, That's not good. Job 42. I love this. This is, again, this place. This is the right response to all bringing ourselves up the throne of our own hearts. And Job's reply to the Lord. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. In other words, I questioned you, but I was wrong for doing that. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. And then he says this, My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I regret the dust and ashes. That's the right response before the Lord. Lord, I railed against you because I had you. I thought I had you all figured out. And he says, 
I have heard about you, but now my eyes are seeing you. I have a revelation to you all. That's all we need to pray every day. God, to be a greater revelation of who you are. And this right response. And so he was removing himself off the throne of his own life, and he was putting God back in his rightful place. The two other passages, very quickly, right before the passage of James, we this morning. Isaiah 55, 69. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's a right thing. Seek, seek God. Seek him. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. In other words, what is again? The prophet is saying, what is he saying? Come back to God. Come back to God. Forsake your wicked ways. Come back to God. God loves you and he has a plan for you. His plan is to God. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. You don't get that from anything else. God is looking forward to pardoning you. He looks forward to giving mercy. Because he says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, stop trying to figure me out. Stop thinking that you've got me all figured out. My ways are way higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And when I do something that goes against you, trust me, I love you. And then ultimately, we fast forward to the New Testament and what Jesus says. His invitation... First of all, sorry, Romans 11. This is Paul. We'll get into what Jesus said. What does Paul say? Um, this is breaking out in this wisdom of the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his path beyond tracing out. This is Paul in the New Testament. So it's a great New Testament example. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Rhetorical question, no one. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one will ever know the mind of the Lord at a certain level. Who has been his counselor? Answer? Nobody. Nobody's counseling God. God, here's what you can do. Come here, God. Let me counsel you. No one's his counselor. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things to come with glory forever and ever. Paul, in his place, Paul the same. Paul had walked through some hard seasons. He walked through persecutions, being beaten, being imprisoned, and you could, at some level, probably say, God, did I sign up for this? Why, why is it so hard? I thought following you would be, you know, like rainbows and unicorns and peace. Eating marshmallows all day. And every kind of other analogy this soft and fluffy that you can imagine. Why is it so hard? Every time I step out, it seems like I get clubbed. But Paul didn't say that. And that's why he breaks into this, this song and he says, nobody can understand the mind of the Lord. We are just to walk with Him and yes, we might go through some things and yes, it will be hard, but God loves you deeply. Do not separate the idea that it's hard, God doesn't love me. There's suffering, God has removed Himself from me. No, he's saying, in all this, I will worship God. To Him be glory forever and ever. Because ultimately, at the end of this, is Jesus Christ opening His arms and eternity with Him. Stay close. Stay fixed on Him. Don't give up. And then Jesus, what does Jesus say? This invitation for us to get ourselves off of the throne of our own lives. In Luke 9, 23 through 25, then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever, I love the whoever word, because that invitation is to all of us. Whoever, you want to be my disciple, whoever wants to, but here's what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my for me will say that what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit their very soul? What is he talking about there? It's you being God or him being God. He said, You can gain the whole world, you can put yourself on the throne of your own life, you can be God. You're not uh, you're not gonna be a good God. You're gonna be a horrible God, but you can do that. It's up to you, you can do that. 
and you might gain things, and you might even get wealth, or you can get popularity, or you can get to a certain status in life, like Nebuchadnezzar, and you can rise to the top of the, 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 the heap, but ultimately, you will forfeit your soul. And there's an end game here that you do not want to step into, because ultimately that leads you to destruction, as you being the Lord of your own life. And here's what Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. You know what deny means? Disown. Disown. This is more than giving chocolate up for 30 days. I'm just going to deny chocolate for 30 days. We're still American, aren't we? We used to laugh about the American fast. I'm not going to supersize for 30 days. I refuse to do it. I'm not going to get the biggie fries for 30 days and fasting the biggie fries. We're kind of funny that way. But what he's saying is just own the right to yourself. Deny yourself. Just don't remove yourself from the throne. Deny means to remove, to get rid of. He says, get rid of you. And that's not fatalistic. That is actually great freedom. It's saying, I, I'm all in. I give all myself to Christ. I remove myself off the throne and allow him to be there. And I deny and I follow him. I surrender to him. I give him access to my life, complete access, complete control, giving him the throne. And again, self-lordship may lead you to gaining the world but losing your soul. And I'm saying, is that worth it? At the end of the age, is that worth it? When you look at Jesus and you see him in his love? Because, like I said last week, we will all stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and I don't think he's going to be there with this big gavel to whack you over the head. I think he's going to be, just like you looked at the rich and ruler, he has compassion in his heart. I believe it's going to be it's going to be a heartbreaking idea for Jesus to have to tell people, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me. You were your own God, and so now eternally you will be your own God. You will be the master of your own faith, but it's a faith away from me. And it's a fate of destruction. And so removing ourselves. You know, instead of saying it's you know it's it's it's, it's my it's my life and I perch myself up on this, it's my life. I have a right to my own life. Instead of that, it's saying I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Not I but Christ who lives within me. My old self is dead with me. We might say, well, it's in culture, it's my body. I can do whatever I want in my body. But the Bible says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's the biblical perspective. It's my money. It's my stuff. It's my life. And then the right response is every good and perfect gift comes back and then it's not just on my own before I can truly give away. So in Christ, there is our life. We are horrible gods. And today, my encouragement, my invitation to you is in whatever way you have been on the throne of your own life to get off that place and say, Jesus, please be Lord of my life. Take that throne again and again, waiting. I know there's times I'm going to jump up there and I want to but don't hope me through that every day. So, briefly, I just want to just take a couple moments here that, again, today's thing when we talk about it. us being God and sitting on the throne of our own lives. It's a, it's a great segue, and then we talk about what's going on in our world. <clears throat> there's a lot of shaking going on. There's, there's obvious things going on. We hear Ebola now every day. We're hearing ISIS. We're seeing the economy and all the stuff that's going on around us. And here's the thing. We should be aware of these things. It's, it's important for us to be aware. And I'm going to get into next week where Jesus talks about things that will be happening in the end of the age. Now, are we at the end of the age? I don't know. You know, I think about people in World War II. You know, Christians in World War II thought it was the end. I mean, they were convinced that Hitler might be the Antichrist. And you can see how they would feel that way. He's taking over Europe. He's killing millions and millions of people. And this is bad. 
And so, you know, there were times in history where Christians, you know, they were really saying, this is it, this is the end, we're here. And it's probably easy for us to say, look at what's going on in the world. And so, I'm not here to say that it's the end of the age. I don't know. But there are some interesting things happening. And Jesus said, pay attention to the signs that are going on around you. Pay attention. Be aware. Now, because we have to have a, a right response. I mean, God's people should always have a, a right response in the midst of anything that's going on in the earth. I mean, in America, we've been very peaceful. But there are Christians that live this out every day in the Middle East. And they're having to stand in their faith, and they're having to, they're going through great persecution. And so we are. There's things that we need to be aware of, but it's not living in fear. Because the tendency is fear. Or conspiracy. But living in sober reality, it's, 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 don't bury your head in the sand and pretend nothing is happening. That's not a right response either. But it's paying attention to the signs of our times. And it's a time of turmoil, it's a time of unrest. And we are told in Scripture that these things will happen. And so, over the next couple of weeks, starting next week, I'm going to look at some very specific things what's going on, what the Bible says, and then ultimately our response of keeping our eyes on the Lord and what we should be doing. Uh, but I think that, again, as I've been praying and looking, I felt just even pastorally that, that at least we should look at this and read through it and not just say, let's ignore it, but just say, what, what is God saying? I mean, in Revelation, those letters to churches, it says, pay attention, hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. And so we want to have our ears open to what God might be saying during this time. Now, the return of Christ could be a long, long time away, I don't know. But there are just some interesting things that we need to pay attention to. And here's a key passage, and I'm going to leave you with this, because I think it really um, goes along with, with what we were talking about today. And the next point is, what in the world's going on? Hebrews 12, 25 to 49. So see to it that you do not refuse them who speak, talking about the Lord. If they did not escape when they refused them, you warned them on the earth, how much less will we if you turn away from them who warns us in heaven? At that time, his voice took the earth, but now he has promised. It's interesting because he has promised this. In other words, this is going to happen. God has made promise. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. It's the worst of God acceptably, with reverence and offer our God as a consuming fire. We're promised in Scripture that things are going to be shaken. In fact, this passage says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Why? Because so that which cannot be shaken will be what is remaining. It's interesting is where we put our hope and trust. We've been talking about these gods at war, and ultimately those gods that war within us are where we put our hope and our trust. But we can put our hope and our trust in the economy. Well, folks, the economy is going to be shaken. It's already being shaken. And why would God allow that shaking is because ultimately that which cannot be taken will remain. The things that we put our confidence, our trust in, are those things that are going to be shaken until what? And here's what he says. We are living for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that will be what remains in this his kingdom. Him being on the throne, that is the unshakable place, is that Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life. That is the place that cannot be shaken. And how can we as believers walk through times and seasons of shaking? Because whatever can be shaken will be shaken. How do we walk through that? Is that we have our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ because He's the unshakable one. His kingdom cannot be shaken. And that's why when we are maneuvering through this and people go, man, why aren't you guys freaking out? And we can say, because of Christ, He's the unshakable one. And He brings us peace in the midst of shaking. In the midst of where there might be despair and chaos and confusion and people running around like crazy and what is going on, we are the ones that have peace. And then what Peter says is ultimately it draws people to Christ because it says, be ready to give an answer to the hope that's in you. Why do you guys have hope in them? 
because of Christ? Why do you guys have peace because of Christ? Because we know that not too long we're going to see Him face to face. So we're going to live our lives with Him being Lord and on the seat of the throne of my heart every day of my life. That's how we will not be chosen. He's going to be here. Jesus, we love you. Lord, I pray for each one of our hearts today. Pray for everyone that's in here. We've heard your words. Lord, want to know you more. We are broken, God, and we confess it's so easy for us to jump on the throne of our own hearts and be the king and be the God of our own lives. Lord, especially when we go through things that are hard. God, forgive us. And I, I just encourage you, right where you're at, that you would just allow God to speak to your heart. And if there's whatever the, the, the move of the work of the Holy Spirit that He draws us to Christ, and whatever you were going through, whatever stood out, whatever thing that maybe the Lord has put us down, that you would just have a simple, honest, authentic response to God in the world. He's there, and you can just say, I mean, even in the simplicity of your heart, He hears that prayer that God has been on the throne of my life. No more. No more. I want to walk with you. I want you to be on the throne of my heart. I want to surrender that place to you. Maybe you've done it before, and maybe you need to do it again. Maybe there's areas where you have done that, and you just need to give up control and put in the right place. Encourage you not to leave here today without having done that. Lord, we desperately need you. We love you, God, for the things that are ahead of us, the things that we don't know, the things that are unseen, or the hardships that we might have to walk through. You know, sometimes in the hardships that we will walk through, that Lord, we will have you as first place, priority, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, over our lives. Because Lord, you are the unshakable one in your kingdom, essentially. God, we want to fix our eyes on you every day on the Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have an awesome day and a great